I am thrilled to announce that Enactor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at KindFarmsInc, all one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is KindFarmsInc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is RYAN10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, today on An Actor Despairs, we have artist Simon Birch. Simon is someone I hunted down for the show and I am so grateful and excited that he agreed to do it. I discovered Simon in 2017 at an exhibit called The 14th Factory that he did in Los Angeles. In this episode, we dig really deep into this project, his story, his journey, and everything that's involved in what it means to be an artist. Because of this, we do this in two parts. So today, I am releasing part one. Simon, I got so much love for you. There's so many amazing things in store. Ladies and gentlemen, please follow him. Check out the 14th Factory. They're on social media. I'll include the link. Here it is. Simon Birch, welcome to An Act of Despairs. How are you doing, brother? I'm good, Ryan. How are you? I am <laughs> so much better now that I am seeing you, man. I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed a little bit because I've really hunted you down and, and uh, I don't want to say forced, but politely begged you to do this show because I... Uh, I am busted. I, 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 I say this with every degree of sincerity, and it's a reoccurring theme on this podcast is, you know, great art is, is a shot at immortality. Moreover, great art can change the world. And very rarely does it ever work. Most of the times it, it's a massive failure. And every attempt is, is somewhat of an attempt to, to do something. And what I've seen with your work is some of the finest and most moving pieces and relational aesthetics, which is something we can dig into for those not familiar with the art world and the experience that I've had with your art. It is like uh, you and I briefly met before. And, and uh, for those listening who know of Sleep No More, it's the only thing that I could say akin to a kind of this voyeuristic, really intense experience. And I'm, I, 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 take it so seriously that you're here i think you're gonna you're you're changing the world brother and i'm so grateful for it so thank you well that's what well, well, th- one thanks for feeding in 
feeding into my insecurities that great art sometimes doesn't ever get it doesn't ever make it which is quite true um, um and that's very flattering but obviously you know I, I feel like i'm just sort of just the beginner and just getting started on my journey and, uh, for uh, those who think that is way too humble i mean dude i would put you past banksy i put you past yeah, Ritu, Katalan. but it's relative right so you know you know examples of success in art is relative and you're right there are artists that that uh, are brilliant who die without ever being discovered without selling a painting and uh you know and i'm 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 certainly not undiscovered but i'm I'm certainly not in that level of superstar art world being written about and interviewed. But this is probably the first podcast interview I've ever had. Well, <laughs> it's funny because we're going we're gonna to clip this in a year when everything changes and it's going to be like, oh, remember when he did that podcast? <laughs> That's it. It's weird because, look, you're, you're very kind to say those things. And, you know, recently I've been sort of revealing a bit of the story behind my project, The 14th Factory, on my little Instagram, and I only have a couple thousand followers. You know, I'm not like a I'm not like a girl in a bikini. You know, it's like 10 million followers. Yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing for a living, and I have a yeah. few thousand followers. So it's you know, I so you know, in my little bubble of my world, I'm kind of just I'm just my mate's mate. You know, I hang out with my mates, my girlfriend. You know, I'm I'm just a, I'm a little I'm just a little pea of an artist that did this really big thing and really put everything into it, but it. You know, I haven't really blown up. I haven't become very successful or wealthy. You know, I live a very humble lifestyle. Uh, and, and these days I spend most of my time trying to raise support to do a bigger project, bigger and better project. But it's very, you know, so in my little world, I'm just a little Simon Birch and I'm, you know, desperately struggling to try and become successful as an artist and have some positive impact with my life. So, you know, you know, I, I can see how... You've obviously seen some of my work and my projects, and you've got oh my God, it's amazing. But I don't feel that way. I mean, I'm, I'm humbled that people came to my exhibition, the 14th Factory in Los Angeles. In, Ch- in Chinese, Chinatown, right? It was Chinatown that it was it in. Was just, yeah, just, well, it was in Lincoln Heights, which Lincoln is Heights. to the east of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's east of downtown LA. So it's a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, uh, which is a Great pleasure for me because I, you know, I, I really like kind of Mexico and that. You know, my last name's Perez, bro. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been to Mexico in the past. I loved it. The people are so warm and friendly, and obviously the food's amazing. So, we we actually ended up in in that neighborhood because you know it was it was cheapest. It really was very cheap. Well, we couldn't well, get a space. Space, yeah. We're going to build our way up to the to the 14 factory and and to everything that you've done. But I think in order to give yeah. context and to understand everything, well, let's oh, start. The context is, yeah. So well, the context is well. First, if, it, if it's okay with you, well, let's start. Let's start at the very beginning. You grew well, up in the so. UK, right? Yeah. Where yeah. Would it, were your parents artists? Uh, actually, they were they were at art school. And they got uh, pregnant when they were like, my mom was like 18, my dad was 19. And wow. they dropped out of art school. Um, and um, I'm, I'm actually, my father's Armenian and my mom's Polish. Wow. And on my Armenian side, we actually have a very rich cultural history of design and art and architecture. But, you know, but, but you know, 100 years ago, there was a, you know, an awful genocide in Armenia. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of Armenians had to leave, in, including my forefathers. So by the time my mum and dad grew up, we were just a very poor family. 
trying to eke out a living. So my mum and dad dropped out of art school, both very talented artists, actually, but they never became artists really in any formal sense. So my mum paints still. Um, she became an art teacher. My dad became a graphic designer. Uh, but they, but when I was a kid, when I was born, my mum and dad worked really shitty, brutal day jobs just to pay Survival rent. Survival-wise, wow. Yeah, so the mom, mom was, um, you know, full-time house mum, and uh, uh, my dad worked in a, in, a, in a shitty factory, worked in a farm, he did all kinds of horrible jobs because he had no education, basically, yeah. and, and no, so no skills at that time. But, but eventually what happened is we got older, my mum and dad managed to go to school, go back to school. And my mum got a teaching degree and became an art teacher. My dad got a degree in graphic design and became a graphic designer. So by the time I left home, by the time they got divorced, when I was about 16, um, they, 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 they actually started their careers in their sort of uh, mid-30s. Wow. And both went on to do quite well, actually. Yeah, I mean, they got divorced. So I, I haven't seen my dad for about 20 years. But, um, but my, I see my mum now. Uh, you know, if ever I'm in England, but I, I left home when I was 16. I didn't see my parents for about 10 years. Yeah. Wow. Weird, weird. Well, talk, talk to me about your childhood did, with having two parents that were, you know, obviously artists at one point and had to take a break. Did they instill art in you? Did you grow up painting and watching cinema? Like what was your relationship to art? I definitely grew up painting and drawing. I mean, I was, we, we because of work, you know, like many families who are sort of, poor, I suppose. I mean, we weren't, I don't consider we were poor because I felt when you're a kid, you don't know you're poor. You don't, you know, when all the kids yeah. at school go, go on go on a ski trip and you don't go, you know, I, I took pleasure in being that outsider. But yeah. the truth is, you just couldn't afford to go on holidays. So I didn't really mind. It's only as you get older when people buy a new pair of sneakers, you know, when you're 14 and you've got shitty, the same pair of sneakers you've had for 10 years. Yeah. And then people laugh at you and go, you're the poor kid, you know? So... So I didn't. So I, so I wouldn't say I'm from a poor family. I think I'm from a great family. But but yeah. um, but we had a, you know a challenging financial upbringing. So that's why I left school because I've been. I just we we moved around so much because as my mum and dad tried to get work. Um, and any time there's a better job, they would move to a different city. So I got dragged from city to city. So you know you kind of learn independence. But I was I was obsessed with comic books, and I suppose that's to do with escapism. Wow. Uh, so I was obsessed with Batman, The Dark Knight, you know. So Frank Miller was a, was a big inspiration? Bill Sankiewicz, yeah, Frank Miller, Alan Moore, um, Neil Adams. Yeah, there was, you know, an endless list, right? So I was obsessed with comic books, and I thought I want to be a comic book artist. So wow. I used to draw panel after panel of superheroes. I had sketchbooks full of superheroes. Partly because I wanted to be a superhero. I wanted to save yeah. the world. Also, I want to be a comic book artist. But, of course, I left school quite young, and I worked. So, I, I mean, I worked from when I was about 14 or 15. But when I was 16, I, I worked full-time. I, was a bar, I worked in a bar. I was a dishwasher, wow. a glass washer, dishwasher. And I pretended I was 18 because you couldn't work in a bar unless you were, you know, to be minimum of 18. I was only 16. Wow. So I bullshitted that I was 18. And um, I worked in the, the coolest, trendiest bar in my town, which is called the Helsinki, which is in a town called Leicester, which is in the Midlands, which is where Birmingham and Coventry is. So it's the industrial sort of Middle England. Peaky uh, blinders, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much yes. so, yeah. And, 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 but, but where I grew up, it was very high unemployment, a lot of violent street crime, a lot of drugs. Um, I used to hang out in what you would call the projects, but we call the council estates. 
you know, with some very uh, sketchy characters. But I've, I, you know, I've enjoyed it all. I thought it was all a great adventure, you know, hanging out with gangsters and drawing comic books and working in this cool bar and washing, washing dishes and drinking beer underage. You know, it was fantastic. Yeah. That sounds beautiful. I enjoyed it all. You know, I enjoyed it all. You know, it was looking back, it was pretty rugged because, you know, it's like in certain parts of America, there is a risk of violence every day. Yeah. And I realized that where I live now in Hong Kong, the risk of violence every day is zero. <laughs> Wow. But where I grew up, it was kind of 50-50 every day. Yeah. And I was a scrawny punk rocker kid. So I, I learned to box and to martial arts and, and because I got, I got beaten up a lot as a kid. So I learned hey, to... I learned to learn throw a punch. That's incredible. Well, so you get this survival job doing that and you're drawing and, and you love this. At, at what point did the uh, uh, catalyst happen where you started to realize like, I want to pursue learning this further or do this professionally? Like what was your path? Well, it took, it took 10 years because I actually, I did so many odd jobs as a van driver, like a delivery driver, worked in a factory, uh, et cetera. I was a bouncer when I became kind of, you know, into fighting, yeah. I became a bouncer for a while and saw some awful, awful uh, fights, I must say. Luckily, came out relatively unscathed. Um, and then I when I, I actually I started I learned to DJ. And this is like, this is, a, oh, this is such a long time. This 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I learned to DJ. Wow. Um, because where I was working, the bar I worked in, you know, one night a DJ didn't show up. And I said, I'll give it a go. And I became obsessed with music. And I, um, I, I not only DJed, then I started running my own parties like rave parties so this is like late 80s and this, this is, is no, no crate vinyl music. days yeah fully fully oh, 100%. Awesome. So I, and back then you know music hadn't specialized in the way it has today so you could you could play big daddy kane followed by the house sound of chicago followed by Aretha franklin and you would just mix it all in and somehow it worked soul to soul was really big back then in england so i yeah, I DJ'd and, and I loved it. And then I started running my own events and they just went nuts. So I thought I was going to be a rave promoter for the rest of my life. Wow. But then it didn't work out after a few years. Um, I really fucked up my business. And, oh, God, you probably can't swear on this. Can yeah, you, you can. Fuck yeah, my business. shit. Can't play, piss, say whatever you want. Yeah. So I... Uh, I, I really made a mess of the business. I did one big party that, that basically was cancelled. I lost all, my, all the money. And suddenly I was in trouble and I was in debt. And I, I basically had to leave England under a black cloud when I was about 19, you know, with, a, with, you know, with my head hung low, yeah. um, feeling like a loser. And I travelled around the world a bit. On the, you know, I literally had a, I left with about 50 quid in my pocket. You know, it was like 70 US dollars. And... Um, and I just backpacked and worked odd jobs in, in Thailand and Australia and wherever I ended up. And somehow ended up in Hong Kong, um, where I basically got a, a, a day job as a construction worker uh-huh. and uh, a laborer. So I had no qualification for this, of course. Um, but I got promoted very quickly because I was very good at working at height. I was very, wasn't scared of heights, so they put me on a bridge project. So I would work on a bridge. I'd walk up and down this 200-meter-high bridge every day and abseil off it to kind of, you know, fix holes and things like that. 
It was a bridge called the Chingma were you, Bridge. Were you, what, were you roped in or were you, was it totally? Yeah, roped in, oh, okay, roped okay. in. Yeah, I, I did a bit of rock climbing when I was in Australia. I was pretty good at rock climbing. So, you know, when they said, oh, there's something needs fixing at the top of the bridge, I'd be like, no problem. Give me a rope, I'm off. Give me a harness, I'm off. And I would abseil up, you know, a few hundred yards in the in the sky. And I did very well, so they kept promoting me. And then in Hong Kong, I met people in the sort of dance music world because, you know, I was a DJ and then I got DJ work. And then I started running my own parties and they were huge, hugely successful. So I was doing these parties for like four or 5,000 people every month or two. Wow. And uh, killing it, killing it. It's so well. And then the government banned the construction work that I was involved in. They banned people working at height on buildings on a rope. Too, they said it was too dangerous. Then they banned raves all within a few months. Why? They banned raves, literally. Because, well, the rave parties got out of hand because there's a lot of drugs at these parties. Yeah. And the drugs here are run by the Chinese gangs called the triads. Yeah. And the, the gangs would fight each other for the territory and just chop each other up. And the police basically said, well, we've had enough of this. We're going to ban rave parties. And that was it. Overnight, there was no more parties. So... There are literally, there is no large nighttime activity here at all. There's only small bars and clubs. And no to this day. Parties. To this day. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, huh? That is incredible. Yeah. What? If you want to do a concert, they'll let you do it in certain locations, government-sanctioned locations, but you, you have to be done by like 11 o'clock at night. Oh, that sounds... <laughs> so, I mean, it's probably better for an adult, but if you're at 19 wanting to have fun, you know, fuck Hong Kong, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the point is... All of that process, right, from um, being a kid, moving to different cities, um, DJing, being a bouncer, succeeding in England and failing in England, succeeding in Hong Kong and then being shut down in Hong Kong. Through all of that process, I always was drawing and painting. You were, and that actually, was my next question. I, so it never stopped. Yeah, never stopped. Never stopped. Just never thought. One, I would, could ever be any good. And honestly, my work was awful back then, but I loved painting. I loved it. I really, it was therapeutic. I enjoyed it. So I, I, by the time I got shut down in the rave business and the construction business, I saved up some money. So I thought, well, I'll just go back to England and I'll, I'll be able to fund myself for a couple of years to do like a, you know, a Bachelor of Arts yeah. and, and study fine art because maybe the world is telling me the reason I keep failing and none of these things working out is because really my true calling being an artist. Yeah. So I tried to get into some schools in London, but because I didn't have any CV of arts education or whatever, you know, any exams yeah. or anything, they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> so wow. I couldn't get into college. Couldn't get into college. So, and so I was like, fuck, what am I supposed to do? So... It seemed like that they, they said, look, if, if you could put together a really good portfolio, we could review and consider. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll, I, need to, I need to get my skates on and, and paint a lot of paintings. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll try and do an exhibition and that'll spur me and give me a deadline to produce a lot of work. So, so I, I, I started work and then I started taking my paintings around to galleries in Hong Kong. And there were very few back then. This is 20 years ago. There was only about a dozen galleries in Hong Kong. There's no art museum in Hong Kong to this day. So we're not like a normal cosmopolitan city where you have loads of galleries and art fairs and, you know, performances and concerts. It's not like that here. 
it's a, really a financial capital. So there's not many, there weren't many galleries then. There are a lot more now, though, because uh, over the last sort of six, seven years, um, they started a big art fair called Art Central, which then became Art Basel, which is the, yeah. the art fair from, um, from Switzerland and from Miami. <clears throat> so it's changed now, but back then there was nothing. So I went to a bunch of these galleries and I sort of knocked on the door and said, hi, I'm Simon Birch, here's my painting, can I do a show? And everyone said no. So I couldn't get a single opportunity to do an exhibition. So it really pissed me off. And I just thought, oh, fuck you, you, you know, elite motherfuckers, you know, just because yeah. I'm not a famous contemporary Chinese artist, which was kind of the thing then, because a lot of them would only represent Chinese artists. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was, basically, was I was unknown. So they were like, well, you don't really, nobody knows who the fuck you are. Why would we give you an exhibition? Because I, I can paint this. And they're like, well, you're not, you're not that impressed. So it pissed me off. So I just, I rented out my own little space and put up my paintings by myself and just put up my own art show. Didn't sell anything, but man, did I love putting that show together, finding my, getting my friends to model for me and painting them and drawing them and then getting on the walls. And then my friends coming to my little opening, like 20 people turn up and like, oh my God, Simon, you're really good. You've got a future as an artist. And that was all I needed to keep going, really, was that little motivation from my friends to say, hey, you're really good. And then one of those friends said, hey, let me help you do the next show. I've got a bigger network than you have. Yeah. And that's what we did. We, so me and a couple of mates, um, this great woman called Michelle, my sort of friend's wife, she said, well, I know a bunch of bankers. Let's do another one. And we're doing more of a push. And then um, that, and that's what we did. So we did a second show and a third show. And by the third one, we had like a really huge crowd turned up. Like a thousand people showed up and sold everything. No way. And that was in the space. Yeah, so after a few years of being essentially unemployed, I be- suddenly became a, an artist selling, more, selling work for more than I earned in a whole month. So one painting would be more than I earned in a month when I was a construction worker. So I used to earn maybe... 1500 or 2000 US dollars a month. Yeah. And then I'd sold it for 2000 US dollars. It was mind blowing. So, so that was that. And then, then the galleries took interest in me. And then I got introduced to a really good gallery called 10 Chancery Lane, which is still here in Hong Kong today. It's a brilliant gallery. And they said, um, you know, do a show with us. And they had their network and I had my network. And boom, prices went up. And that yeah. happened year after year after year kept selling and selling and selling. And then because the work was kind of figurative, people, painting portraits and, you know, bodies, these rich people, bankers, uh, which are, there are a number of in Hong Kong, yeah, sure. started saying, hey, can, can you paint my wife, my kids? Can you paint me? So the next thing you know, I'm painting the chairman of HSBC, the chairman of UBS, you know, you name it, Rothschilds, all these yeah. big bankers and their families. And the commission just started lining up. And suddenly I had a waiting list. So I had to keep putting the prices up. Wow. The prices quickly went from a couple of thousand to a few thousand to sort of four or five, yeah. 10,000 US dollars. And uh, then, it, then I was just, oh my God, that was it. I found myself, you know, I was just, this is that for me. It must have been incredible be to have gone from that to knocking on doors and everyone saying fuck off to now literally like you having to tell people, yeah. hey, you know, add a couple of zeros and I'll do one for you. <laughs> It was, I mean, looking back, it was an amazing, if that was my life, that was, if that was the end of the story, it would have been a wonderful life. But unfortunately, things have gone all over the place since then. But 
But it was it was that period of just painting, paintings constantly and actually being able to rent a studio to work yeah. in. You know, after about three years, I could afford to rent a studio. So I had an actual dedicated space to paint in. And it, it was bliss, you know. I just, I would, I would paint seven days a week, every hour that I could stay away. I was obsessed. So my painting technique-wise just accelerated rapidly. Yeah. I went from painting pretty average portraits to painting, you know, relatively decent ones and really developing my own work into a much more sort of um, expressive and, and, and um, uh, sort of abstract, you know. So I really took the opportunity and just sprinted, sprinted. And I made sure I was nice to every customer and client. I'd, every exhibition, I'd, I'd be so polite to everyone. I'd go to every other artist's exhibition and introduce myself yeah. and, and try and make friends. You know, I really grasped that opportunity and sprinted and sprinted and sprinted and sprinted. Yeah, so it was uh, it was a it was a journey. Yeah, and and as you were doing that, I mean, I imagine it's so cool to make that money for a while, but at a certain point, did it stop becoming fulfilling to just be doing? No, I mean, I, the money never really, I'm never really interested in the money. Yeah, I mean, other than you know, coming from my background, obviously, the first time I got a decent check, oh yeah, I treated myself. You know? I'm sure, yeah nice car you know and i upgraded my apartment and i rented a studio so you know that but that was enough i didn't need much more than that you know i was yeah. quite quite happy with that i mean I'm, I'm not i'm not buying i wasn't buying like you know handbags or whatever people do with their money yeah i wasn't i, really I don't know i don't have any <laughs> but yeah yeah you know i'm saying it's just i'm not you know i'm not into like fashion and buying stuff anyway i mean i'm I mean, the, probably the, the biggest luxury was going on a vacation now and again, which was a real first for me, you know, to go and go and rent, you know, a hotel, stay in a hotel on a beach. Yeah. And that was, you know, we, we, we could just go to Bali because I'm a surfer. So go to Bali, which is kind of a cheap, you know, you can go to Bali for a week for like, you know, 500 bucks. Wow. So I'd just go to Bali and surf. But it was, for me, that was such a revelation to be on holiday. <laughs> I know it's so, so, it sounds so naive. but No, not at just, all. So excited to be there. The weird thing was, of course, I couldn't. I never told anyone about my past. You know, yeah. you know, sort of rough background. I always just used to, you know, speak nicely and politely, and um, you know, and you know, I I just keep it keep it to the art. You know, I wouldn't get into who I was, where I was from, because I thought people would look down on me if they found out that I wasn't really an artist you know that i didn't go to art school yeah what does that even fucking mean you know to be deputized yeah, by some yeah. overpriced university like fuck that dude yeah, yeah. Well, saying, there are some people can be very judgy but of course i'm quite open well, about it's the it, art you know? world it's all pretentious you know yeah, but well, i was so naive and i was like coming from a non-art world background and so many people buying my work and like uh, you know by asking me out for dinner and things going to fancy yeah. people's houses for dinner and it was all, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to break, you know, fuck it up, you know? Yeah. So I, I just used to be super polite, super respectful, you know, never used to drink because I didn't want to sort of get out, get, say anything inappropriate or get out of control. So I was just always, um, you know, just try to do my best and deliver and deliver and deliver. So somehow I just became this portrait painter dude. Hey, it's yeah. the portrait dude, so yeah. much. You know, and I got invited to lots of nice dinners. And then, you know, I'd, I'd get invited to sort of nice parties by brands and things. I just became on the scene here. Yeah, like Louis Vuitton yeah. gave you an award, didn't they, in Asia? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah because I, the, the truth is, one of the reasons I became very successful here, and I would say very successful because, I'm, you know, objectively, I'm probably one of the more successful artists to come out of Hong Kong. You are the most successful that I, 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 I... 
sold so much work. Yeah. And the price is pretty decent these days. So I've done a lot of exhibitions. I really never rested. So, but one of the reasons I was very successful here is no competition. Mm. So I'm quite sure if I had ended up back in England or went to New York or somewhere yeah. and studied, I would have got, it wouldn't have gone anywhere because there are a million artists better than me. And that's still the case today, to be honest. But in Hong Kong at that time, I was this alone, you know, tall, you know, people say I look like David Bowie, but which is a very flattering. But so I'm this tall, white, you know, look guy, you know, who's polite and who looks cool with a funny haircut. And, um, and, and I painted well and people like me as a person. And it just... It, I don't know, man. It was just right time, right place, and all that. But insane but, talent, you know. I'm gonna have clips of your work. I mean, dude, you're you're you're. I mean, well, like but, that, that, again, that's really polite. But if you know anything about the art world, it is it is very aggressive and it's very judgmental and it's very subjective. So what one realizes, and obviously, I've taken great pains over the last twenty years to educate myself about art. Yeah, and I realize now, you know that where my art stands and I've got a long way to go. Luckily, I'm still relatively young. So I've got a good 40 years left in me to become a good painter. So I'm, I'm still just getting, I still feel I'm just getting started. So I, re I realize obviously people buy my work, but I've been to some very tacky houses yeah. that have my paintings in them. So I've been, I know a lot of people with very bad taste that bought my paintings. And so, you know, you have to be careful. And I also know that you know, I've never been picked up by any major gallery or dealer or, and I haven't, you know, appeared in Sotheby's or Christie's. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not, you know, either, I, either I'm not at that level and I'm not actually that good, as good as you think I am. Or I, know, I, I, I know you are. I mean, please. Well, somehow yeah. I've had bad luck and been, being ignored, you know, um, and maybe it's a bit of both even. But so I don't really know if I'm a good artist or not. All I know is that my opinion of my work is I've got a long way to go. So I, but I get it. People say to me all the time, oh my God, I love your work. It happens every day. Um, but, but am I like Banksy in the auction houses and famous and rich? No. Is he a good artist? Well, he's, you decide, he's, right? well, he's playing a game. And I think he even kind of met you know, in a, a meta theatrical way, poses that question, but you guys, you know, are apples and oranges. Yours is, is, yes. is, is very, very different. Very yeah. different. But, but the truth is that, you know, there are artists that have been dismissed in their lifetimes, uh, you know, and, and, and he awfully humiliated. I think of Marcel Duchamp, for example, or even yeah. Van Gogh. Yeah. Right? Who, who now, Marcel Duchamp is one of my heroes. I mean, and there are You're, artists that I'm, I'm a fan of, like Santiago Sierra, who, who most people would look at their work and go, I don't get it. Like yeah. Fontana's one of my favorite because Fontana's the artist that just slashes the canvas. Yeah. But he was around the 20th century. And if you ever see his work in an art fair, you could walk past it and think, oh, is that someone's damaged that painting? Because it's a yeah. blank canvas with a flash. The guy's a genius. It's brilliant yeah. art. It's brilliant art to go through yeah. the canvas, with a hole in the canvas so you can go through. This stuff is amazing to me. So have I had a brilliant idea like that? Not necessarily as a painter. I think my paintings are all right, but I think I've got a long way to go. And when I look at, you know, de Kooning and Joan Mitchell, I, I see their paintings in the flesh and I go, wow, that's a fucking painting. Holy shit, I've got a long way to go. Yeah. So, but other people would look at de Kooning and go, oh, my kid could have done that. Yeah. 
But if you see them in the flesh, it's quite, they're quite moving, you know. And Joe Mitchell's another one of my favorites. It's this quite moving painting and a dedicated entire life, you know, uh, dyed painting, you know. I mean, that's, 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 that's art. And, and then, I mean, Picasso's the great example, right? You look at his later work, and, and most of people uninitiated in the art world would say, well, my kid could paint that. Yeah. And, but you don't realize, but if you really look at Picasso's history, you know, it's, it's incredible his, what, what he did, how he turned art upside down. Same as Andy Warhol, et cetera, et cetera. Some of these artists recognized in their time and others not. So, so am I a good artist? It's not for me to say. It's probably for history to say. It's from very smart people to say. But I, what I do know is I haven't really been written about, interviewed, featured in um, exhibition, invited to do gallery shows in New York. Uh, you know, I remember- Well, I'm gonna change all of that for you. Literally, yeah. it starts here now. And- Yeah, I, I'm, I, over I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm over it. It doesn't bother me anymore. I don't well, give a shit. I give a, sh I give a yeah. shit. I give a big shit. And, and uh, this podcast is about literally building up the people that have, have inspired me and, and kept me from, you know, I'm five years sober from blowing my brains out. And, and just even though I'm an actor, I'm not a painter. Your work is just like, man, I need to fuck shit up. And I'm so curious as, as the rise of the. Keep going. I'm just grabbing a glass oh, yeah, yeah. from behind it. I'm, I'm curious right. as, you know, in obviously like, you know, around 2004, we kind of moved from that dial up speed, starting to the more kind of Wi-Fi router that sped things up and, seemingly the world started to become more interconnected as MySpace happened and Friendster and then eventually, you know, Facebook and things like that. And with yeah. the internet and media and being in a bubble like Hong Kong, did suddenly, even though you said you weren't, you know, and haven't been written about, did the internet and people uploading your work, did that start to cultivate an audience for you in other cities? Or yeah, I mean, I did I, – <sighs> I did start to see the images of my work pop up on kind of, I don't know, Pinterest kind of things, you know. Um, so I did see images of my work popping up around the world. But I, but I, I don't know, I, I guess I was, I, was, I was doing so well in Hong Kong, I just kept painting, painting, painting. And I guess I kept meeting people in the art world here as because... There was a clear interest from the international art world to set up in Hong Kong because it's tax-free and because they can access the big Chinese collectors and Indonesian collector market. So you, you started to get these rumbles that, oh, things are going to start happening here. Galleries started talking about moving here, the big ones like Gagosian and Davis Werner. So, and then, you know, they, this guy started an art fair called Art Central. And then Art Basel bought it out. So really, you know, in the last six, seven years, it's accelerated dramatically. Now there's all the big galleries here. So I guess I thought, you know, that my name was already kind of out there. You know, I've been in a couple of uh, little magazines and things, nothing too fancy, no art magazines really, but some, a couple of magazines from LA actually that were kind of cool back in the day. And then I'd seen my stuff pop up on a few websites and things. And I thought, oh, something's happening here. I'm going to get picked up soon. I'm going to get an offer. Someone's going to give me an offer, say, hey, I run this gallery in New York. We'd love to show your work. Yeah. Never fucking happened. I'm still waiting. Yeah. Still waiting. I just, and the, the worst thing is because I just got a brilliant offer from a gallery in Los Angeles, but it was this, uh, you know, a year ago and then COVID broke. Oh, and the, God. It's been on hold ever since. Yeah. 
Fuck. Anyway, so it's, it's weird. I, I mean, look, the problem is with having this discussion and you talk about, is your work any good? I think your work's great, you know? And, you know, did you get, did your profile pop overseas? So I'm partly I'm oblivious to it because I'm, I, I don't know why I haven't popped, why I haven't had more exposure. Uh, you know, I don't know if my work's any good because I don't get any feedback. I'm like, I'm not hanging out with curators and people in the art press or the art world. You know, I, I was just always in my studio working and just you weren't doing the mr brainwash shepherd fairy you know click yeah david cho like those kind of guys yeah yeah but i met david cho you know and shepherd fairy i've met these people yeah and said oh simon i'm from hong kong i mean i'm a big fan of yours oh yeah yeah you're a friend of so-and-so yeah oh my god yeah i love your work yeah and i'd follow up and go hey it was so good to meet you you know i'm you know i'm gonna be in la for a week you know love to hang out no one would ever reply me. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I think I've met everyone you've ever heard of in the art world, from Murakami to, yeah, to, yeah. There's only a few that have ever replied me. One is um, a guy called Futura 2000, who's a New York graffiti artist. Okay. And the other guy from New York is a, is a guy called Hank Willis Thomas, who's a brilliant contemporary artist. Uh, but but I've met so many famous artists, galleries, dealers, collectors. Yeah. And it's, it's so rare that anyone ever replies to your phone call. Because I think the truth is most people are trying to deal with their own shit. Totally. Get, keep their own name up there. Yeah. Do their own show. They just don't have the bandwidth to help you. But I'll tell you what, I've made it my mission in life. Anyone that calls me, like you, <laughs> I'm like, what, what do you need? No problem. I'll do it. <laughs> oh, dude, but it means so much. Up. You know, I have the space here in Hong Kong and I must have given a hundred artists the space for free and just said, do whatever you want. I'll give you a first show. You know what I mean? So I, I try to, I try to pay it back. Cause I'm like, yeah. I don't want to be those people that one of those people that ghosts people doesn't reply their emails. Even if it's, I'd love to help, but I can't. Yeah. I, or I'm, I, I'm busy even, you know, <laughs> more in my life is people not replying me or ignoring yeah. me. And it just, it's been weird, but I, but you know, there are a couple of people that definitely, try to help me and make instructions for me. But unfortunately it just, it always just seems to just stumble and never go anywhere. Well, so at, yeah, it's strange. At, at what point did you, because like, you know, obviously we're, we'll get to the 14 factory, but at what point did you decide to transcend just portraits and start dealing with like, you know, sculptures and, and installations <clears throat> and visual, <clears throat> you know, like, was that a gradual very, very gradual. It's probably over about 15 years now because what? as soon as I started selling paintings, I started meeting other artists in my, in my community and, and making friends and, and meeting graphic designers and filmmakers and, and then saying, hey, we should do something together. Yeah. And I mean what I say. So I would go, okay, hey, look, I'm going to make this painting and why don't you remix it and do some graphic design on the top of it? So yeah. I started doing these little collaborations with people. And then I met a lot of sort of photographers and filmmakers here and these are all, you know, local Chinese um, artists. And I'd say, hey, I've got this idea, you know, what if we filmed, like I'm painting these bodies moving, what if we filmed the body in your style and then we showed them next to each other? Unfortunately, you know, like me, people in Hong Kong, artists are thin on the ground. So they'd, they'd be so excited to meet another artist and work together. There wasn't that cynicism like, oh, no, no, I don't work with anyone. I'm too cool. Everyone was just yeah. like, yeah, I'll do something with you. Why not? Totally. Let's do something. So I just started these collaborations and really enjoyed working with these experienced filmmakers and photographers, these graphic designers and fashion designers and performers. I just really enjoyed all these collabs. So I, these, I started doing these small 
kind of multiple artists, group shows or installations. You would call what you'd call now is immersive experiences. Yeah. But they were quite small back then. They would just be like, you know, half a dozen artists and we'd do a film bit and a music bit and a couple of paintings and a couple of sculptures and everyone would be involved. And I would just fund these things and find a space and just put them on because, you know, the galleries weren't interested in that because they couldn't sell anything because, you know, video art and stuff back then was really, you know, not something commercial. Yeah. They just, the galleries just wanted me to keep painting the paintings and take the commission portraits because that's where the money was because yeah. the gallery would take 50%, right? So, so, you know, they would encourage me to keep painting, but I found a balance. I would you know, spend six months painting, do a show, make a bunch of money, then use that money to fund all these experimental projects. So 15 years ago, yeah, these were small things, you know, in a few thousand square feet, but I would be working with all these different artists. And they just grew, and they just grew and grew and grew and grew. And um, I did a couple that were really quite, so I thought, pretty substantial and pretty high quality. Um, and... Um, that was kind of where I was heading to do these immersive experiences. And this is before Instagram existed, you know, yeah. so there was no selfies back then. And um, then I suddenly got sick, got really, really sick. And oh, um, no. yeah, so I was, um, I just, you know, I'd fallen in love with this beautiful girl. I'd um, I very, I bought this a lovely sports car. I won this art award, this Louis Vuitton art award for yeah. Asia. And I was, you know, I went to dinner at the Four Seasons. There were 400 people there that stand on stage and say, thank you. I was like, fucking hell, man, it's happening. And at the yeah. time, it's one of these art fairs and stuff were happening. And I was like, shit, this is, this is all about to happen. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to find a gallery in Paris and Berlin and New York. And, and I'm just going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the, the artist. I'm going to yeah. be a great artist. And I'm, I'm going to work every day. And suddenly I got sick and I had to go to the hospital for a checkup. Cancer. You're going to be dead in six months. <clears throat> oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Simon. I didn't know that, brother. Yeah. I'm so heavy, yeah. man. How did you yeah. How did you boo yourself during that? I mean, I, I, I don't know how anyone does. I mean, what the fuck, man? This I is mean, like 20 years ago now. Um, obviously, I'm perfectly fine now. But yeah. it was... I had had some kind of sinus problems and always getting kind of flu and cold and infections and stuff. And I had this particularly bad episode where I had this ter terrible migraine. It was like really weird and I couldn't get out of bed. And my friend, my called a friend who had to pick me up, carried me to hospital and they did all these tests on me. And yeah, they found out that I, um, had what's called NKT cell, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it was um, late stage, so it was, um, it was not good. And it's a very rare type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was the first Westerner that ever seen that only affects little old Chinese people, little old Chinese ladies, you know? It only affects old Chinese people. It's very rare. They'd never seen a Westerner with this before. So the first thing they said is, how, how are you half Chinese? I said, no, no, I'm, I'm actually half Armenian and half Polish. They said, well, it's, we've never really seen anyone with this condition before. So, that, so I said, well, what are my chances? And they said, um, maybe 10% survival rate, if you're lucky. I said, well, hang on. So what, 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 what do we do? He said, well, yeah. we need to do chemotherapy and radiotherapy. I said, well, it's all very shocking. I said yeah. to the guy that, 
he said, I, well, 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 what do I do? I need to go see a specialist or something. And he's like, yeah, you need to go see an oncologist, radiologist. I said, okay, so what, do we schedule it in? He's like, no, 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 it's scheduling. You're going now. I went, okay. So they take me up to another department and they go and meet these, you know, cancer specialists. The oncologist says, I can't treat you. It's out of my, it's out of my realm of expertise. The radiologist says, oh, I've seen people like you before. You, you've got, basically got tumors all throughout your head and neck. I can treat you, but you probably still die, but you're definitely going to go blind, deaf uh, through the process because we'll fry you. We've got to fry your heads. Oh, my God. This is like, like an hour, you know, from being diagnosed. Within an hour, I was sitting there being told, if you survive, you'll be blind and deaf. You won't be able to smell for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, I, like, fucking hell. I was like, you can't, what? I, and I, I, I felt okay, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was, well, I'm like, I was in my 30s. I was, you know, young. I was really into fitness. I never drank, you know, never smoked. Yeah. Fitness junkie, like, you know, snowboarding and surfing, rock climbing. And I, so I was insane. And I spent a day just like crying and in shock, calling people that love me and going, I don't know what the fuck to do. And of course, yeah. everyone went, well, look, look what we're going to do. We're going to. We were going to, um, you know, call some doctors in different parts of the world and see if somebody, someone can help. Because at this time, you realise I was successful as an artist at this point. Yeah. Everybody knew who I was in town, and a lot of these people were very wealthy. Yeah, it was banker people. So a lot of these people, are like, hey, we've got money. We know doctors. You know, we're in private health. You know, we're yeah. going to help you. So they started sending my results all around the world. And I mean, I woke up the next morning and just sort of shook my head and went. He did say I had a, you know, a 10% chance. Why don't I just decide that I'm going to be in that 10%? Yeah. And I, I put a smile on my face and I never cried again. I just got to work immediately. So the first thing I had to do was work out what other treatments available and who's going to give them to me. So I had to track down oncologists in Hong Kong that would even treat me. And it turned out there was only one that would treat me. And he gave me the hard word, but I went, I, just, I don't believe my chances are this low. I think I can do better. So I used my network to meet people in research science, in medicine. So I went to the leading sort of institutions in Hong Kong. This all happened within just days, didn't sleep for days. And I forced my way in through favor into uh, pathologists and hematologists and yeah. research uh, laboratories and just sort of went, look, just look at this. You've got to help me, you know. Tell me what's going on with my body. What can I do to improve my uh, success rate? And I, I learned everything about the immune system and cancer. Within a week, I was a fucking expert. I call people all over the world. Yeah. Um, luckily, my friend is actually a surgeon in Australia. He was very helpful, though he was a junior doctor at the time. He, um, he had friends and, who had favours to him, and he did a bunch of calls. And I spent a week just going crazy research, deep, deep dive. Yeah. Not just learning about, you know, uh, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but what about alternative medicine? What about yeah. Reiki healing and kinesiology? What about Chinese medicine? Yeah. What about diet and exercise? All these things. What's the latest information? And, you know, I was under some pressure because the oncologist said, look, your situation is so severe. If you're not back here within 10 days, forget it. I'm not treating you. You'll be dead. So you need to, you've got 10 days to do your research and you need to start chemotherapy or I'm out. 
So I said, don't worry, 10 days is enough for me. I'll see you in 10 days. So I did all this research. I basically came up with a sort of project management cancer strategy, which was a, a sort of a mixture of all these different things I researched. So I realized to change my diet really heavily to be extremely pure, pure clean, organic, pretty much ketogenic. So that's like, yeah. uh, you know, fish. Less than 20 and, grams, yeah. Um, so pretty low carb. But some carbs, because the energy consumption necessary to go through chemotherapy is incredibly high. Yeah. So it was, it was, but it was no gluten, no dairy, you know, no lactose. And no sugar, no alcohol, no caffeine, you know, things you would expect, you know. Yeah. I had to remove all plastic materials from my house, any chemicals from my house, um, to, pay, to make the, the apartment extremely clean with air purifiers and stuff like that. So no traditional cleaning materials anymore, no moisturizers and things like that. Everything had to be extremely clean. Um, same with soap, you know, and, uh, um, you know, any washing materials, everything had to be super clean. So that was part of it. And I realized, even though that was against the thinking at the time, that exercise would be a benefit because the way it affects different parts of your uh, recovery systems. Um, uh, Chinese medicine, I've really bought into that and acupuncture because there are practitioners here from China that, you know, are generations deep into that shit. So yeah. uh, uh, there's a lot of um, evidence here that that stuff's really, really useful. And then I found certain supplements were really useful, especially in high protein, uh, very high quality protein supplements and uh, high quality vitamin supplements. Um, and uh, I committed to do some of these crazy things like Reiki and... I've done Reiki. Um, yeah, and uh, kind of hypnosis therapy yeah. thing, regressive therapy and to unlock anything going on you there. Because yeah. honestly, none of those things do any harm, right? So you come yeah. up with this loop. Totally. And when you those treatments, it's like it's a period, it's like an hour with some kind of therapist, physical or mental. Yeah. Where you basically someone's looking after you, which is a really lovely feeling, you know, to have to be cared for. Yeah, the and intimacy. I, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I um uh, and then I committed to six months of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, the most aggressive. I basically asked them to double the treatment they give anyone else because normally they treat old, old, older people. I said, look. I'm young, strong, so I'm an unknown quantity. Just give me double what you give everyone else. Yeah. Uh, so we upped the dosage of everything I had to because it was kind of a one-shot deal with this thing. It's like if you, if you don't kill it now, it will come back and destroy you. So, you know, you have to get it out of your system a thousand percent. So that's what I did. So I, I planned all that strategy. You know, I wrote a little Bible on it, essentially, which I actually have shared ever since with people going through cancer wow. who've been diagnosed. I share what I did. I don't say I'm a doctor, but I say... This is what I did, and this is my approach. And if you need help in Hong Kong, especially, I can give you resources that cancer charities and people in medicine that I know yeah. that, that I'm because I've been involved since then, 10 years ago, I've been involved with a charity, the charitable side of, of cancer and care. Uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a volunteer or ambassador or whatever you would call it. So, um, but anyway, so but after all that happened and we got ready to start the chemo the night before, I called all my closest friends took everyone out for a drink and I said, hey, I've got something to tell you. They thought I was going to say I was going to get married. I said, um, actually, one of the first things I did was broke up my girlfriend because I didn't, didn't want, want to put her through, through it. it. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really stupid of me. She never forgive me. Anyway, so, but that's, that's done now. But um, I got all my friends together. I said, right, I'm not getting married. No, I'm got cancer. I've been told I'm going to be dead in six months and if I do, it's your fucking fault. So, 
I need your help. You need a you need a help when I get really sick. Someone's got to take me to hospital. You've got to feed me. Yeah, you know whatever. So if you're 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 either in it with me or you're out of this fucking room right now. Yeah, and fortunately for us, well, they were slightly, you know, emotionally blackmailed, but true to their word, everybody stayed and helped, and even to the point that artists documented it, photographed my process, you know, and um, I. But yeah, it sounds like an amazing adventure, but the truth is. About three or four months in, especially when the radiotherapy started, it was, it was brutal. I can brutal. only imagine. I mean, I... you just become a skeleton. Uh, you know, you lose all your hair, but that's the last thing you're worried about. Yeah. You be, you know, radiotherapy essentially, you know, it sort of burns you. I mean, you burn yeah. burnt, but inside your body yeah, as well. Yeah, from the inside out, right? Yeah. yeah. Everything inside your head and neck where I was being fried every day, five days a week. It just rotted. It just dis- disintegrated. So you're bleeding constantly out of all your orifices, yeah. and you, you're you just and eventually you see you can't even eat. It's so painful. You can't swallow. Yeah. And you can't talk. You can't talk because you have to write on a notepad. Yeah. It's just just a, it's. I can laugh about it now because I survived, and it, we have such a capacity to forget pain, trauma when you when you survive. But fuck me, it was brutal. Brutal. And I really went in gung-ho. I can survive this. This is nothing to me. No, that positive yeah. manifestation is everything, you know? I mean, well, that... I don't know, because I read about manifestation. And actually, the the, the, the outcome of, of patients who believe they're going to survive is no different to the ones that think they're doomed. It's wow. pretty equal. Uh, maybe, I don't know if there's current research, but that was the research I was reading 10 years ago. What, the research that I read that was quite compelling was that if you hated your cancer and imagined killing it that had a really positive outcome oh, strange wow. enough. so i would spend a lot of time and i i at the time i was some years into studying bushido like the, the way of the samurai so i was a i'm a third dan or third degree black belt in kendo which is uh, yeah. you probably seen people fighting with bamboo swords or something yeah so I really imagined being a samurai when I was doing any of those kind of hippie therapies. I imagined being a samurai and cutting the cancer to pieces. Yeah. So you know, that was the one bit of research that convinced me that might be worth doing if I was going to think about anything while I was, rather than lying there feeling sorry for myself. But I never really felt sorry for myself. Honestly, I was... Yeah, how, how do you, like, my, my show's <laughs> called An Actor Despairs. How did you not cave to despair? Because I... How? Because I... To a few things. I up until then, I'd had a fucking great life. I'd come yeah. from nothing to become one of the most successful artists in Hong Kong history. And surfed, you know, with a, with a, you know, being able to afford to go to Bali and the Maldives surfing, to go to New York, you know, to go to back to London to to, to see my mother who I yeah. hadn't seen for ever. You know, I, you know, I went to Iceland. I went to all these places on my bucket list. Yeah. I'd been to so many of them. I told my best friends in the world that I loved them. I told my mother I loved her, which I'd never told her for like 30 years, you know. I, um, you know, reconnected with my brother. I have an older brother. You know, I, I, I told all my friends I loved them. And it was, it was in a way, that, that honesty that it brought, that singular, singular narrative of survival and nothing else mattered, it made you really high and focused and you suddenly saw the truth of the world about all the things we worried about, the complete bullshit, you know, money and popularity and 
you know, the things that really mattered to me when I was sick was love, the friendship, yeah. things you can't buy. Yeah. It's so cliche, but I would take pleasure in simply seeing a little puppy running in the street, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Blissful things that don't cost anything. And it just ch it changed me dramatically. And I guess that's what it's like for pe people who have a child, you know, which I've unfortunately never had. I've always wanted a kid, but uh, not yet. But um, Forgive but me if was, this is an ignorant question, but during this time, were you doing any kind of creative output? Were you doing yeah, channel? No, never stopped. Never you never stopped. stopped. Wow. I did, I did the most successful exhibition of my life, bald, like a skeleton. I thought it would be my last show. I remember going to the opening and, and actually fainting because I was so weak. And uh, I wore a mask, so nobody knew that I was there. Wow. Uh, just my friends knew that Very I was there. Very vanilla sky. <laughs> and it propped me up, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it was a brilliant show, and it sold out, partly because the rumor was out that I was dying. Oh, God. And a lot of people bought and told me. We actually bought one kind of thought it would probably go up in value after you die. And in a jokey way, but in a serious way, too. Yeah, I know. I can imagine commerce and art, bro. Yeah. It really positively affects my sales. But thank God, because that money paid for my treatment, because the health insurance, which is called Bupa, reneged on paying for my health insurance. So I, I couldn't actually afford it. So fortunately, I'd, you know, and general, generally, anytime I made a bunch of money, I'd, I'd treat myself to an adventure, and the rest of it would go on developing these experimental projects, which I would fund. Yeah. So, so I wasn't getting sponsored to do these exhibitions. I was, I was the sponsor. So I wasn't, it wasn't a grant from the Arts Foundation or anything like that. No, 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 I couldn't get any funding for anything I did. I would film these films and do these installations and rent the space myself. Yeah. So I, so I did this exhibition, which was called This Brutal House, was the title of the exhibition. It sold out and it actually there was a big dinner there, which Louis Vuitton hosted, and it was for Art Basel. Mm. And I was there in my weakened state, and I met so many famous gallerists and collectors and whatever. And I thought, one of these guys is going to open me an exhibition, you know? He's dying. We want to get, I'll get, a, get this signature on a paper before he goes. No one took, could, could give a fuck. No one gave me any interest at all. So... That was a bit depressed, but but I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't give a shit. I was happy that I knocked out a few last paintings and had a good life. I'd got to experience being poor, being on the wrong side of the tracks, and then becoming successful and being able to buy a sports car and yeah. go on a vacation and date a beautiful girl. And I, I felt so blessed to have lived. Yeah. So I didn't care. I thought if I die, it, it was all good. I know yeah. how it works with cancer. If you get really sick and it looks bad, they pump you full of morphine, you go to sleep, done, yeah. you're out. And I've seen people die in hospital in that exact way yeah. because I really got involved with people uh, suffering from cancer after that experience. And uh, so I was happy and I, I, every day I was so loved, you know. People were like, can I, can I get you anything? Can I help you? What do you need? You know, and I, I, so I, I, after that ex one exhibition, I spent the next year really as a recluse, only really seeing my closest friends, who were essentially my family, you know, because I was relatively estranged from my family at the time. You know, it's not like my dad came to see me or anything like that. And, and from diagnosement, uh, diagnosis, or whatever the plural of that is, to end of treatment, how long of a time period are we talking here? Well, about a year, yeah. A yeah. year, so, wow, yeah. God. So, that, so, so, so I survived and that was wonderful, but it was, I almost wish I had died in a way, which you're not supposed to say things like that, are you? But, but the truth is, 
I was ready to go, and it was a surprise to me and everyone that I survived. But but I fucking worked hard at it. I worked hard at it, hundred yeah. percent. I diet and all this stuff. I really didn't stop. But it was when it got really rough. It was like just let me go, just yeah. let me go. When it was when you, I would wake up, throw up. The pain of throwing up would make me pass out, and then I'd wake up and carry to bed like a skeleton. You know, just. I couldn't get out. I couldn't get up anymore. It was, you know, someone had to help me through everything. It was just, oh, I couldn't speak. I couldn't eat. It was just brutal. I was just like, I, if I go to sleep tonight, I hope I don't wake up. I was done. So strangely, of course, then they go, this is a miracle. You, we can't find any cancer in your body. Wow. And then they said, but you're going to have at least six months where we can't test you because you're so radiated. Yeah. We can't do another test. You're too fragile. So I basically, so I said, so, so, so what do I do? So sit at home, rest, eat well, you know, but let me know if anything bad happens. Like, you know, you get bad, you feel sick, you know, yeah. whatever. I would feel sick every week. Every week I, I would suddenly go, I'd have a nosebleed and then I'd feel like I had the worst flu of my life and I'd call the doctor and he'd be like, all right, come in, you know, and, he, and then he, he would say like, the truth is, Simon, you know, and I was out of money by this point as well. It's cost me a couple hundred thousand US dollars. I'm sure. Living in the bank. So, so he would say, look, the truth is, Simon, if you, if we find it's come back, you have to submit to these scans. Each scan was like, you know, 10 grand or something yeah. like that, right? So, yeah. So he'd be like, uh, if we find it, I said, what do we do if you find I've got cancer again? He said, well, nothing. I mean, there's nothing we can do for you because we can't go through the treatment again and just kill you. You'll be dead. Yeah. You'll be dead in two weeks. So I said, well, why the fuck am I coming back for all these tests? I said, I can't yeah. afford it anyway. I said, look, I'll, I'll call you if it's an emergency, but I'll, I'll, I'll see you in six months. And then I just kept getting these awful pains and problems. So there would be these emergencies and he would just talk, talk me through it and he'd say, look, and then they'd you know, recover a bit. And so there was this awful six month cycle of just being in agony and being sick. After six months, he submitted to the test, it was all clear. So I said, what happens next? He says, well, you've got two years until you're in remission where you're essentially all got the all clear. So you've got yeah. two years where you have to do these tests. I said, what happens at the end of two years? He said, well, if you've got it at the end of two years, um, you know, there's nothing we can do for you anyway, but at least you'll know. So I said, okay. So I basically went on vacation for about six months. Wow. Deserved. Yeah. I tried to recover. I tried to recover and did very little. And tried to recover, and um, after a year, went for a test, all clear, and then after you know, another half a year, all clear, and two years, all clear, and I said, when do I have to come back? He says, well, you should probably have another test within the next five years, which I did, and uh, yeah, that's seven years ago since the last time. Well, I had, I mean, I have a blood test every now and again anyway, just for yeah. general health, but touch wood, I'm... I'm yeah. You survived, dude. Dude, I'm so proud of you and so grateful yeah. that you did, man. Yeah. It's, it's it so but the worst thing wasn't really the cancer. It was, it was afterwards going. There was so much energy put into surviving. Then after you just like you, you feel like shit all the time, and yeah. you keep getting pains and sicknesses, and you're just like, what? Well, fucking hell, it's not over yet. So you end up feeling really sorry for yourself and just like, why me, man? Because then you start to really, you're not in the fight. You're yeah. just looking and going, hang on, I'm not a complete asshole. Yeah. You know, I'm 
a bit of a dick, it's true. I can be a bit cheeky and, you know, inconsiderate, selfish. But fucking hell, I'm not like a drug-dealing, racist, homophobic thinker. Why me, man? Yeah, what the fuck, dude? It fucks with you. Then you're like, you feel hard done by. And then, of course, having survived, having done this brilliant show, that I still wasn't getting any opportunity as an artist. I thought, God, if anything, it's a great story. It's a survival story. Surely this is going to open a door for me. So I get some payback. The payback's going to be, I'm going to become this great artist. Nothing happened. I was so pissed off. But while I was sick, I basically designed, like, if I could do one thing before I die, what what would it be? And it was essentially the forerunners of the 14th factory. It's a very, very large, the biggest exhibition I'd ever attempted. The space is about 30,000 square foot, and I designed this show. And I managed to have a couple of exhibitions post-cancer that did well. So I had some money, but I was still waiting for this kind of all clear. And I was so worried that it was going to come and get back and get me. I went, fuck this. I'm going to do this show. I'm going to use all the money I've got. I'm going to sell my fucking sports car, whatever else I've got lying around. Yeah. And I'm going to build this the show of my dreams, which was called Hope and Glory. Yeah. It essentially was the incubator project for the 14th factory. And Hope and so Glory I, was in Hong Kong. I remember that, was, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I built this 30,000 square foot show, which had life-size monsters kind of figures. It had a mirrored skateboard ramp. It had um, video installations of trapeze artists flying through the air, of tigers. It had um, this huge sculptural works that were in a huge ball that was the size of a house that was covered in thousands of trophies. Yeah. Each trophy having the inscription of someone who helped me survive. It would, it, and on and on and on, and on these massive, uh, almost like Las Vegas letters that were 30 meters long, these huge letters that spelt out the name of a long dead Armenian king. It was an enormous labor, this project, and it took a year to make, and um, we, had, we only had a, a month to install it, so it was real panic mode. I ran out of money, but luckily, this lady who had just bought some of my paintings, took a great interest in this project that I was building and said, look, I'll, I'll fill in the rest. And she loaned, well, she gave me actually about 200,000 US dollars when I ran out of money. Wow. And we built this enormous show for one month, non-profit, free entry. It was rammed. You could not move. People would line up all day to get into it. It was so popular. People like the 14th Factory, which, yeah. you, which you know about. People went would come and sit there all day and just marvel at it. And it was, yeah. so it was, it was a scruffy amateur version of the 14th factory, but people fucking loved it. People had never been to an art show in their lives. It was so loved. People still talk about it today. 12, 12 years now since that yeah. happened. People still talk about it. Say, oh my God, that changed my life. I became an artist because I went to that show. So that was that. And then I came out of that completely broke. Um, and then started to think, well, Maybe if I start doing more exhibitions, which I did, save up some money, I can do this this more intellectual version of the show, which is called The 14th Factory. So there was this incremental process of painting, experimenting in an installation, and then immersive experience, leading to these larger projects, having to deal with cancer in the interim, trying to get my career more successful so I could generate more money to pay for these things, and not really succeeding. So... When Art Basel came to Hong Kong, 
it really brought thousands of artists and opportunities for collectors to buy. So I suddenly had a lot of competition and I just hadn't managed to, to get my stake in the ground in any other city to expose my work or yeah. I just got drowned out by all this other stuff going on in Hong Kong. And to be frank, you know, all these galleries coming to Hong Kong were coming to sell, not to not to find artists, really. Yeah, and if they weren't going to find artists, they wanted a Hong Kong artist, which meant right. Chinese artists. But that's my perspective, and I don't know, really. It may be, Ryan, honestly, you always have to sort of take a breath and think, well, maybe I'm just not that good an artist. I'm no, not good at that's it. fucking bullshit, dude. You're brilliant. You don't know, you don't know Ryan. You don't I, know. You I do know. Opinion. I'm a pretentious asshole. I know, man. You're. I mean... I, I, you're 153 people, man. You're one of the most brilliant, no, gifted no, humans. Art, art is not like film, which well, is I, kind I, of in, indisputable, yes. right? Everyone knows The Godfather's a good film. Yes, true. And now there are some films that are cult films that some people like and some people don't get it, right? Yeah, Donnie yeah, Clarko or something, right? uh, which, is kind of, which is quite a popular film, actually. Barry Lyndon, you know, if we're going to go Kubrick, yeah. Yeah, Wes Anderson when he started, right? But we yeah. all know now Wes Anderson, great, great director, great yeah. filmmaker. Art is different. Art can be propped up, can be promoted, Marketed. And monetized. Yeah, degree. Everybody thinks it's shit. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I won't say who I don't like because I'm, you know, because it is so subjective that I don't even know if I know what a good artist is myself. I, but I definitely like stuff that's quite conceptually driven. And um, I suppose, yeah, so I can say who I do like, but I can't definitely don't say who I don't like because that's, it's, too, it's too easy to, to, to pick those brand name artists that are the biggest yeah. artists in the world that aren't necessarily the best artists. And that's the difference. You know, art tends to be really understood a hundred years later. Yeah. The film is understood pretty quickly, yeah. pretty quickly. Some films get missed for a couple of years and suddenly they become hot. Yeah. You totally. know, I remember Lucas THX one one three eight before he made Star Wars. You know that film was so ahead of its time, and nobody really got it, and it didn't do well at the box office. But ever now, people see it as a cult classic, right? Yeah. So, as as an actor, I relate to you on such an iconic level of just nobody fucking giving you a chance, and everyone shutting the door out, and it doesn't matter. And all these, you know, in my opinion, hacks do well that I don't think are good that I won't name. At what point do you, Simon, realize okay, these, you know, Christie's, Sotheby's, they're they're not giving me the chance. I want to grow outside of Hong Kong. I've done great here, and I've done what I can. I need to make the chance happen, whether it be London, L.A., New York, Paris. Where did the idea start to come to take, you know, Hope and Glory? Did I say that right? Hope and Glory. Yeah, because that show was so successful. It was so loved. Obviously, you know, nearly bankruptly. But but I just thought, God, I'm onto something here. I, 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 I built the show that I wanted to see. Yeah. Because I wasn't seeing shows like that. I wasn't seeing large, collaborative, multiple media environments that you could get lost in. I saw stuff like that in China. I was going to Beijing a lot, working with artists in Beijing at that time. And I saw artists' studios and shows that were kind of group shows that were installation-based. And uh, there'd been a project in Hong Kong uh, sponsored by Chanel, which was designed by an actual movable building designed by Zaha Hadid which was this huge, like, looked like a UFO. And when you walked in, there was a number of artists who had created work along the theme of Chanel. Yeah. So everything looked a bit like a handbag. But, but there was something in that. 
a temporary experience that you wander from room to room. And I was like, that's kind of what I wanted to do. But I thought, well, why can't it just be one piece of contemporary art? And why, why does it have to be curated? Why do I have to pick art by different artists? Why can't I direct the artists to create the work together yeah. from the ground up around a central theme? So, and that's what I did with Hope and Glory. And I'd done it with a few projects before that were much smaller. So, but Hope and Glory really was the incubator. I really saw the potential, especially I saw the audience reaction. I saw people from all walks of life love it. And I went, yeah. I'm onto something here. And again, this is before social media. People didn't take selfies back then. No. So, 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 but I, I wanted to take it further. So I started to dig into the themes and concepts of Hope and Glory, which were very similar to themes you would know from film. If you've seen Harry Potter or Star Wars or The Wizard of Oz, they all have this central hero myth theme. Yeah. And these stages in, in that structure. And this is, you know, Carl Jung talked about this, Nietzsche talked about this, and a, 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 an author called Joseph Campbell wrote about it in the, in the yeah. a Hero with a Thousand Faces, a thousand faces back in the 40s, I think. And it was this idea that there's this shared mythology between all of us. And you all buy into, and it's the story of Jesus Christ all the way up to Star Wars. Yeah. So I, I love that, and Hope and Glory bought into that, that idea of these different stages of our journey. And therefore, I could create a project that was universal in its narrative, and I could drive that narrative into the artworks and then, then bring these artists and architects and filmmakers and composers in, and we would all work together to create these elements. Yeah. So I, after Hope and Glory, I really started to dig way deeper into uh, philosophy and mythology, um, uh, the things I was interested in personally, which were pop, pop culture, science fiction, nature, and whatever else. And I, I really wrote the script of The 14th Factory, which was essentially the follow-up to Hope and Glory. Um, uh, so this is literally within a couple of years, I sketched out the entire project. What those elements were, I needed... From room needed to it. room, you had the conceptual yeah. idea. And that monomyth or hero myth structure is, you know, you go down the rabbit hole into yeah. Wonderland, heroes and villains, there are tasks to overcome, there's transformation, reward, yeah. you know, there's a boon, there's a, a mentor and all these things. So I sketched those out and I slowly started to work out on well, the entry point in some kind of rabbit hole and a long, dark corridor. Yeah. What's at the end of that? Maybe it's a reflection of yourself, you know. You know, what is a reflection of yourself? Maybe it's you moving because you don't... Maybe, and, maybe, and who would shoot that? Well, who's in my network? Who have I worked with recently? Oh, this guy Doug Foster in London. What, who would be in that film? Oh, what about Chang Sin and Li Wei, the artists I've been working with in Beijing? And I started just script it all out. Who do I want to work with? What bits could they do? Who does the shooting? Who's in the film? Who does the com composition soundtrack? Um, which is my dear friend Gary Gunn in New York, who's just an incredible um, uh, composer. Um, and I just started to script it out and then basically place in who did I want to be the actors, the filmmakers, yeah. you know, uh, who's going to be the production manager. And I started to build this ideal dream project, the 14th Factory. Uh, and at the time, uh, like uh, the, the Chanel um, um, pop-up thing, which was this UFO-looking building, I thought I will make my own structure and build it within there. So I'll build yeah. a temporary structure. And my plan at the time was, I'm in Hong Kong, bamboo scaffolding. Oh, because you wow. see it all over the city. They yeah. don't use normal metal scaffolding. They use right. bamboo. And with that, it's really cheap. It's really pliable. It's recyclable. I could build essentially a circus tent out of, out of bamboo um, and um, an organic kind of material. 
And inside that circus tent would be my circus, um, um, uh, which would be this 14 factory thing, this procession of installations from yeah. room to room, large to small, dark to light, compression, expansion, and this, you know, gardens and cinema. Crescendo, totally. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I thought, well, where am I going to build it? So then I, I went to the Hong Kong government. There was a huge empty piece of land, which has still been, which has been empty for about 10 years, but now they're building on it. Um, and I said, can I just borrow this land? And I, I was working with a, a brilliant architect firm called Norman Foster and Partners, which is a British architect. Uh, and and they sort of endorsed me, and we all went off to the races and presented this proposal, and they spent about a year considering it, whether we could use a piece of dirt in Hong Kong, and they said, no, you can't. So and that was that, the end of the project. And then I went, well, fuck Hong Kong, then I'll go find somewhere else to do it. Yeah. And this is, I'm like a famous artist here, and I try, I've been to, you know, property developers and stuff, said, have you got a building I could borrow? You know, no, no, because I had no money. Yeah, so I couldn't, really, couldn't afford much. And, you know, my plan was always to run it as a non-profit because, you know, I had this keen interest. And what if I did the greatest art project and there, nobody, I don't make any money out of it. I do it for, right. for the big Purely selfless reasons so, for... So naive, so stupid. Because I thought I'd just seen that film, Exit Through the Gift Shop, the bank. Yeah, one. yeah, I love that film. Shows the hypocrisy of the art world by creating this artist called Mr. Brainwash. He's yeah. not an artist. No. He's originally the guy making the documentary. Yeah. And they do a show in LA and like, uh, you know, 100,000 people show up wherever they sell a million dollars worth of artwork. And it's all a joke. It's like yeah. a joke. We're going to make up an artist, promote him, and you're all going to go. And then they buy the, and Mr. Brainwash is still a successful artist. Still One of the most. I see him around all the time. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I said, why, what if I make a project, a documentary around it, where I build a project which pops up out of nowhere, where nobody makes any money, where it's just an amazing thing that inspires people and it's a wonderful yeah. gift to the world? Yeah. That was stupid, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, as artists, man, we, we have great ambitions. Should have gone full commercial, right? And made some yeah. fucking money. So... So I do this thing and I just couldn't get, I could, one, I couldn't find anyone that would let me do it. So I went to New York, went to LA, nobody would give me any space. Um, I had some money saved up. I borrowed a bit of money and I thought, right, I've got enough money here that I could put some money down on a venue. And then I'm going to announce it to the world and fake it till you make it. People are going to go, oh my God, it's an amazing project. Let's, you know. Let's do a Kickstarter campaign. Let's give them some money. Yeah. Or, you know, oh, we're a sponsor. We, you know, yeah. we, we sponsor the arts. We're yeah. UBS or Deutsche Bank. We'll sponsor you. And I knew a lot of these people. So I thought, right, I've got a pool of money here. I've got this brilliant idea. Now I just need a space. Yeah. I know so many bankers, rich people. Someone is going to get behind this bank roller. Totally. So off I went and... Uh, also, and you're just having like, survived this thing. So the whole world wants yeah. to... See you come, yeah. you, you know? Yeah. Oh, this guy, he's already done this great project in Hong Kong. And, you know, he's by cancer and he's successful. You know, what a story. Oh, now he's doing this really big project. This so, magnum opus, you know? Yeah. yeah. We, we found a space, couple, I found a space in, in New York, but they turned us down. And we found a really big space, which is the post office at Penn Station, yeah. which was, and this is seven years ago now. It's completely empty. I remember it. Millions of square feet of space, and we met the guy that's from the governor of the state of New York from his office, who basically managed that building. 
and they're planning to redevelop it, and they've, which they've, they've partly done already, right? Yeah, it's still and under, he, yeah. yeah. He said, yeah, 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 take a floor, do what you want, you know, tell me about it afterwards. So I was like, oh, my God, I've got a free space in New York, a million yeah. square feet. So I'll take one Prime floor, location. Carved out 100,000 square feet, rented out a PR company, rented out the, some staff, you know, started employing people, did all the, got the architects over, did all the layouts, the design work. And basically, I then ran around Hong Kong and New York meeting everyone in my network going, I'm going to build the greatest art project in New York, you know, yeah. and it's, it's not in a museum. It's independent. It's an immersive experience. And it was just no, 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 no one would give me a dollar, but I was undeterred. I just kept going and going and going, but we was taking so long to get the project up and running. The guy was like, got nervous. The manager guy got nervous. He said, look, we're bringing in this company called Skylights who run fashion week. Yeah. Uh, with IMG, and he said, they, 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 they already do the Fashion Week at our building, um, and they're going to manage you now. They're going to manage the deal and all that sort of stuff. And they, we, in our first meeting with them, they went, oh, we're so excited about this 14 factory project. It's so cool. It's so edgy, you know, an immersive experience. It's so different, you know. Uh, and they went, uh, but you do have to pay us a million US dollars as our fee, as our consultant fee, which I didn't have. Yeah, who does? And uh, and I went, well, we're fucked then. But the production company we'd hired at the time that started doing all the pre-production work, He, this guy, Ethan, who still works with us today, actually, he said, look, I know another building. Um, and we looked at 20 buildings over this I'm period. Sure. And we, he said, I know this really good building on Wall Street, 23 Wall Street, which is the J.P. Morgan, original J.P. Morgan headquarters. It's yeah. like a 100-year-old bank where J.P. Morgan and those cronies, you know, really built, built yeah. a financial system in America. And Wall Street is interesting because it, it's called Wall Street. It used to be a wall when the Dutch settled there originally. So it's a very historic street and neighborhood. Wow. Um, and um, it's where George Washington, you know, signed the Declaration yeah. of Independence. So it's steeped in history. So I'm like, fuck me, this is way better. And that building we could get for very, very cheap, just tens of thousands of dollars, you know. So because it was in flux, because the guy that owned it had vanished and it had been empty for 15 years. So we managed to, they said, okay, we'll give you this window. You can do it dirt cheap. So that's it. We announced the 14 factories coming to Wall Street. Yeah. And I launched a Kickstarter campaign and I went to all these sponsors and I was meeting so many interesting people at the time uh, in charity, in brands. So I met people from Samsung, LG, um, IBM, I mean, you name the brand, you know, yeah. um, uh, whiskey companies and beer companies and sports car, BMW, all these people. I was meeting all these people. I'm like, oh, it's all it's still just going to happen. Yeah. And then I met, you know, Tommy Hilfiger, who, you know, we, we threw a big dinner party at the, the, at the venue. Wow. And Tommy Hilfiger did a speech, you know, and we, we, we treated 100 people to dinner. The people that catered the dinner for me as a favor was Noma from, uh, from Copenhagen, which was, at the time, the number one restaurant in the world. Wow. A huge favor and did dinner through dinner. So it's in New York Times, like artists doing a brilliant show, doing the biggest show in, on Wall Street. Noma's doing a dinner party. Tommy Hilfiger did the speech. I was like, fuck me, this, the money's coming now. Yeah, let's let, let it rain. I met the guy that did, um, what's his name, Rockwell, who did the, um, the, the, that new development up on the upper, upper west side, that big movable. Oh, building. Like yes. Heather, um, Heatherwick thing. 
Yeah. Yeah, I not, forget what it's called. Not Norman Rockwell. Anyway, so I met people. I was meeting people like that. I met the guy that runs the Met Gala. Yeah. You know, you know, it was really, I mean, pop stars and celebrities. It was just like, I was like, I'm in New York society. Yeah. And I've got the space. I was taking people physically to see the space, going, this is where the show is. It's real. You know, here's the lease, you know, it's real. Invest in me, invest in me, invest in me. And I, I didn't get a dollar. In, in about two years of saying, I'm doing this show, someone help. And at the time, I was, I was you know, still running as a nonprofit. So I was applying for the New York Arts Foundations. Yeah. They were pretty well saying, could you put in 50 grand? You know, no, no, no. Maybe the second project, but not this one. I couldn't get any money. So, and I was running out of money the whole time, you know, doing all the Yeah, burning through the, the getting, yeah. Oh, man. So the, it was all on track. And I was meeting all these uh, charities. And I was saying to these charities, like Robin Hood, you know, I was saying, you know, uh, when we do the show, we'll do a Robin Hood week, you know, where you take the proceeds from the show so you can benefit too. Yeah. You know, I was going to Brownsville and meeting all these really educators and, and people in, in, in uh, less privileged communities, you know. Uh, and I, 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 I loved it going up to the Bronx going to all these places meeting everyone I could in New York saying I'm Simon Burge I'm doing this show you don't know me I'm a good guy I'm doing this thing this is what I've done in the past this is what I'm going to do now this is the building um, this is who's on board and uh, and nobody would put any money into it at all zero so it just got closer <sighs> and closer to shit man there's deadlines here we have to come yeah. up with money and I was literally I'd, I'd sell a painting the money would go straight straight out the door and it just couldn't work. I was trying to borrow more money. I managed to put together a little group of uh, some of my collectors and borrow some hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, which kept us alive. Um, and then at the very last minute, we were, it was like everyone was saying, you're going to have to pull the plug. This is never going to happen. Oh. You can't get any more money. Yeah. I, went, I will find the money. And I flew to Hong Kong. And did a speech at this um, kind of private members club for a bunch of wealthy people. A friend had done me a favor, said, I'll put you in front of a bunch of rich people. At that point, one rich guy stood up and went, I'll give you a check right now. Get on it. Do your project. And gave me essentially the balance of what I needed to, to fund the project. I flew to New York the next day with the check in hand and walked into the production company and went, nailed it, got the check, let's go. And they went oh, we didn't expect you to come back. We actually cancelled all the contractors. No. And I went, well, I've got a check. Just call them up. So they called up all the contractors and said, oh, this guy's turned up with some money. Are you in? And they went, well, we're all taking other jobs now. We've been waiting for this guy for too long. Because it wasn't like overnight. It was like they were yeah, waiting for Yeah, it was slow burn. And we already gave up. And so the production company came back and basically said, well, give us a few hundred thousand US dollars in our pocket. We'll make it happen. I went, I don't have any, that's all I've got. Yeah. And they went, see ya, wouldn't want to be, uh, that's hot. That's New York for you, mate. Oh, you God. Know? Don't I know it. it. You're a fucking loser. See ya. And it was overnight. I had money in the bank to do the project. Most of the show was already built and lost the venue. So the, I talked to the landlords or the reps and I said, look, can we just push back Six months. Yeah. And they went, well, we've had it with you two. We thought this show was going to be open next week. What the fuck? No, we've had it with you two. See ya. Everyone just deserted me. And I had yeah. money at that point on the show. Um, but it, 
the truth was I, I was naive about New York. I didn't realize how doggy dog it is. And it's not, I mean, I, I remember meeting this um, uh, philanthropist, you know, art patron, took me out to a fancy dinner and a lovely time. And she said, no problem. I'm going to, I'm going to put in a, you know, a few hundred grand, no problem. The check never came. I called, oh, what's going on? She's like, oh, she, well, then she wouldn't return my calls. And um, this fat ghosted me. And then I bumped into one of her friends at like a party, fashionable party. I said, fuck, what? I'm trying to get hold of your friend. She, told, she promised us a few hundred grand. Never come. And she's like, well, to be honest, she, 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 she decided to put a million US dollars to buy herself a board member seat at the MoMA. Oh, my God. And she God. Told, the, told the MoMA that this is hearsay. But the rumor was that the MoMA had said, you know, that guy, that project could be shit. Just what? The project. I don't know if that's true. That's just gossip yeah. from a friend, right? Like, it was like, you're telling me that the MoMA told her, don't give Simon Birch money because this project might be shit. So, yeah. And I said, well, I don't believe it because that could just be gossip. Totally. But, which definitely I found out the woman gave all the money she was going to give us, gave it to the MoMA. But they, but the moment's been there forever, so it's a much less risk. Yeah, kind of, but I yeah. mean, what a fucking. Yeah. But whatever. So there was, it was just an awful time because I. Basically so how did you stay place. undeterred, man? Like, how do you keep that oh, stamina God, going? I was, I was so fucked, but I, I had to. I basically spent a couple of weeks desperately trying to find another space in New York, a cheap space yeah. that would let me build some semblance of the show. And we even tried. We looked at. Could we just do one piece of the show at Wall Street tomorrow night immediately? Yeah. Just so there's something up. But honestly, people were shouting at me, everyone was deserting me, jumping shit. Everyone was just like, but this is like Fire Festival. This guy's yeah, fucked. Yeah. Jesus. You know, and that was happening around the same time that all those yeah. people, but that guy raised 25 million US dollars. Oh God, I know. Money. Yeah. They didn't raise fucking anything. Yeah. They couldn't raise a fucking dollar. And my project was the real deal. I had the real space. Art was built. I was already showing people. And you were a con people. artist. You had this huge art career, you know? Real. Yeah. Real. But people yeah. treated me like, I was like, and that really felt like, and it was my feeling. It doesn't, not because you have to realize there was a lot of people that did take my phone call and did say, we'll buy you dinner. Tell us, or we'll introduce you. But you know, the worst was I was at like, I was at the JP Morgan bank building, right? It's a beautiful building. Yeah. Empty. Still empty. It's still empty. I remember I had a friend who bought my work and he was at Morgan Stanley, which is part of JP Morgan. Yeah. And he introduced me to the CEO of JP Morgan in New York. No and I way. Sat and had, yeah, I went to this meeting, went, dude, or maybe it was the CMO or something like that, but he was a yeah. top dude. And I went, dude, I'm doing this amazing art project. You've been recommended by my friend in Hong Kong. He's a boss in Hong Kong. And he's told you to have a meeting with me. And he's vouched me. He said, I'm an incredible guy. He buys my work. The project is brilliant. This is what it looks like. This is the building. It's the JP Morgan. It's your original bank, mate. Yeah. Sponsor me. We'd love to, but it's not a good time for us. It's like, oh. are you kidding me? You're the biggest Come financial on. institution in the fucking world. You rip yeah, people no, up. Yeah. No one has ever sponsored us. It's been a really depressing thing. And even I've, obviously I've worked with Louis Vuitton in the past and uh, Diesel and Shanghai Tang and a few different brands I've done bits and bobs with but but um no one was sponsoring it was so depressing so so i was really emotionally just i mean i i was devastated absolutely devastated but i yeah. kept looking for venues around new york and i had this i have these friends in la you know i had friends in la who birch man don't worry we'll take care of you why don't you just come to la and hang out 
So I jumped on a plane, went to LA just to clear my head and go surf, you know, yeah. with my buddies. One of my buddies, Justin Dina, who runs a company called Thrive Studios, said, hey, why don't you do it, do it in LA? Well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the film business, you know. We know so many locations that are big, empty warehouses. Give us a couple of weeks. So I spent two weeks driving, him driving me around LA going, what do you think about this place? What do you think about this place? Yeah. But I only had a little bit of money left. I had enough money to put it on if I didn't really have to pay rent yeah. and not have zero staff. I could pretty yeah. much afford to install the work and open yeah. the door myself. And I thought, well, I'll... I'll so, so we basically found the cheapest space we could and one of the biggest spaces, which was this old factory on the outskirts of LA in Lincoln Heights, uh, this Chinese factory warehouse building. It's like a hundred year old building. And it was made of like 10 different buildings that obviously expanded over a over hundred years. Yeah. But the oldest building was about a hundred years old. And there was a landlord who was basically one of those big multinational greedy landlords that owns a thousand properties across America. Of course. And they just bought the building. They spent, they spent about $10 million they paid for it. Um, I heard they sold it for three times that, but that may or may not be true. That no, that is true. I heard the same thing. Oh, well, anyway, yeah, so yeah. It's because we put the fucking building on the map, right? Yeah, that's what I was going <laughs> to say. It's because of what you guys did. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why, because, they, because apparently the offers for, for to sell it came while the show was on. Wow. So while the exhibition was on, they were getting offers, people trying to buy the building because yeah. they would never seen the building before. No, so and you guys we, decorated the hell out of it, you know? Oh, I, I personally renovated it myself. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I still smell a paint. Anyway, so um, I, we got the, so I found this building. I knew that we were going to run out of money before we opened, but I thought I can just bullshit my way through, you know, I'll convince the landlord, you know, just to, I mean, they pay, we, we only had to pay um, maybe 50 grand a month rent. Sounds like a lot, but it was, you know, it's over a, maybe 150,000. Yeah, it's building. insane, huge. But I was so exhausted from New York. I didn't really think it through. I just thought, I'm building this fucking show if it kills me. Yeah. It was the last show I ever do it. I'm just fucking doing this. I don't care. If I lose all the money, I can't pay any, any anyone back. I'm fucking doing this. And I, so I just, I, my friend Justin, the guy that found the space, he said, I'll be your project manager. I said, I've never built an art show before, but I built a movie, so I know how to produce a show. Yeah. So so he, for very little money, in fact, I think I still owe him money, um, but I gave him a couple of paintings as a, to make it up. But basically, for the very little money, he put a little team together, and we found the contractors, the painting guys, the woodworker guys, the steel guys, and we started to build the 14 factory. And I... Uh, joined the team, a construction team, yeah, and painted and cleaned. And I mean, I think I spent the first couple of months in that space alone, just cleaning it to wow. a degree where it cut down on the cost to paint or put up false walls. So I would, I knew there were some walls that I wanted to come out. Yeah, so we got permission to come out. I just, I just bought a sledgehammer and spent days just knocking down walls with a couple of mates. Wow. And to try and cut down the, the sort of production cost, because they, because when the construction guys came in, they said, "Well, look, if that wall's not there, that will cost it will cost us two grand to knock that wall down. So why don't you just get a hammer and do it yourself? You know, if you clean this room, it'll be half the price to paint it, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So, unfortunately, we found very good contractors. We found a lot of volunteers, and I I moved to LA. I slept in the building. 
No And way. it's like rat really a really rat-infested yeah. pigeon in shithole. And I bought a bed from Ikea, a mattress only, and I had a suitcase and a mattress. There's no hot water. Uh, I found a shower in the basement that was disgusting, but at least I could clean myself. No hot water. And I lived there for a year. <laughs> oh, my like, God. No, 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 I lived there until we opened. Uh, so, yeah, so then we, I did my best to get the space prepped. And then we had employed these contractors who were very reasonable and generous. And I basically would also walk down to Home Depot every day. And, and there would be Mexican guys that were yeah. illegal workers that were hanging out. And I'd say, get in the truck. Yeah. And I'd get six guys and we'd go and uh, fill the garden with mud. We'd paint walls. We'd, um, you know, it was different guys every few days. <coughs> but I made a lot of friends in the local community. I'm sure they loved you. I got fantastic cheap Mexican food regularly. Yeah. And we just got dirty and built this fucking thing. And it was... How long was, was between the time you got the building to completion of construction? Six months. And if you'd had a proper contractor team, you could have done it in a month. But it took us six months because we could only afford one team, you know, and uh, so, you know, one guy to do it all. And we just got in there every day and got drunk and worked till through the night and had yeah. fun and, and built the 14 factory, painted every wall and surface, built a garden, shit, you know, somehow trucked in aeroplane tails from the Mojave Desert, yeah. did a deal. We're not really, we're not, those ones, they weren't supposed to sell them. But we built it. Built the Kubrick room. Yeah, built the 2001 Space Odyssey room. Uh, that was one of the most expensive bits of the show. Oh, for sure. Uh, we may never be able to show again, unfortunately, because we, we almost got sued by Warner Brothers. Oh, God. Uh, and, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many stories with every element of the show. That's a whole nother podcast because it's... Um, well, we have to know. do more of this. Like, I, I think we're only, yeah. like... You know, we're two and a half hours in and we're only just getting to the beginning of the 14th factory. Uh, uh, we're, I mean, only, we're only an hour and a half. What's your cutoff then? So I should we, pace myself. Well, I was going to say, I mean, like, I feel like I could go even longer, but I don't want to, you know, because I know you're 12 hours ahead. Do you want to pick this? Do you want to pick do you want to pick this back up like tomorrow? Yeah, we could do a, we could do a part two. I can't tomorrow because I'm on, I'm with the architects tomorrow, but but uh, yeah, but I can do do one again in a few days, maybe Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. So why don't we do this? So this this, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah, at this point where essentially I failed most of my life at everything I've tried to do, and I've had these little periods of success, and. And, you know, surviving cancer was clearly a success, but why the fuck did I get cancer? It sucks. And building Hope and Glory, which is this ignition point for what is now a trendy thing, immersive experience is a trendy thing. But back then, I, I mean, I, I hadn't seen anything like that personally. I'd only seen one project like that, which is Matthew Barney's Cremaster project at the Guggenheim yeah. in New York, which is really an immersive experience, which involved filming it and performing in the space and stuff like that. That was very inspirational to me. So I, so there you go. After Hope and Glory, then I raced, you know, tried to build it in Hong Kong, failed. I'd actually tried to do it in LA previously, but with, uh, with the help of Ridley Scott's company, oh, and wow. didn't couldn't, couldn't get it through. 
And then um, it's amazing. My my access is really quite high level. Like I've known people in very high places. Oh, I know you have. Going to New York, I really thought, well, this is it. This is where yeah. I make it. New York, make it New York, make it. I'm going to build this project. Completely devastated, crushed, and all those contacts didn't come through for me, though many people did. Though it tended to be people that didn't have money that came through yeah. for me, not people that did have money. Uh, but that's another conversation about why why people with money don't aren't creative and don't yeah. don't do anything with that money for the greater good. But that's another conversation because, and clearly, I know wealthy people who are extremely generous. Totally. So. Uh, some of those people that loaned me money, you know, in in in, um, in New York, eventually they were all from Hong Kong, but still yeah. it was, you know, a huge leap of faith for people that actually loaned me money to to build that project. So the point is, you know, New York collapses, and then I get to New York, and I'm on my last legs, and somehow I drag myself up from the dirt, manage to find this scruffy group of pirates. And built what I think is one of the greatest art projects in the world. It <laughs> um, is. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we're at that point now where we're in the trenches building the exhibition and the building of it. There's so many clever stories, fascinating stories of the different elements. And that's what we should do next is break down some of those amazing, highlight a few of the yes, amazing stories. Please. And then what happened when we opened and what happened after that. So, ladies and gentlemen, this has been an incredible Thank you for listening. This is only part one. We're going to pick back up with the construction and completion and launch of 14 Factory in a few days. Simon Birch, yeah. I love you, brother. Thank you so much. This is no, this no, is no, amazing, no. man. You're you're changing the world, and it means so much no, for you not sharing. Yet, but maybe not yet. But no, maybe. dude, I love you, brother. And uh, let's no. let's do this again in a couple of days. All right, set it up. I'll talk to you soon. All right, love you, brother. Love you. Bye. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.